Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as The Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. I've been looking forward to this for so long. This gentleman here, they say coaches need coaches. Well, when I need coached up, I watch what he's doing. And he's doing some amazing things in uniform, and I think even better things out of uniform. So if you're in business, if you're a vetpreneur, you're going to want to listen to this episode. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. Um, as you guys know, we just came out with our brand new coffee called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's twice the caffeine of any coffee out there. It will kick your ass. It tastes amazing. Tastes great. But we're not selling it. We're actually giving this away to somebody. All you got to do is write, um, put coffee down in the comments, and we'll be giving that away um, probably in the next week or two. And then, but it's made by a, a, our veteran friend of ours, Jose from Third Day Coffee. So uh, again, it's all about veterans. And if you do buy the coffee, 22% of the proceeds go to help veterans struggling with homelessness and PTSD, helping out Brian with Project Die Hard. And second, also, um, our other sponsor is Maxwell Soaps. Um, if you guys have diabetic, itchy skin like I do, and you don't like detergents, Maxwell Soaps makes an amazing soap that will not leave that nasty feeling after you get washed. And for every bar of soap that they sell, one is donated to help out to clean up the streets of Los Angeles, California. And 22% of the proceeds that I sell from that will go to help um, Project Die Hard. So thank you for our sponsors. Our sponsors are 100% veteran, 100% of the time. Matt, my brother, what's going on? <clears throat> Oh, another beautiful day here in Orlando. I mean, I, I love I love Orlando. Um, I can't wait to go there. Um, I got to ask you because I have a, a, a three or four friends named Marshall. Now, does that come from, is that like comes down generationally? Or was that something that at the time was hot? I think it was when the time was hot, my friend, which <laughs> actually that surprises me because I don't meet very many marshals out there. So the fact that you know that many is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, one of my friend's name is Marshall Gillen, and he's uh, he's, okay. he's one of the most prolific speakers I know. Um, he, must he's, be a, uh, you know, no, but must be a really cool guy if his name's Marshall. <laughs> he really is. So, where do you come from? Uh, where'd you grow up? And what kind of little boy was Marshall? Oh, a troublemaker. Um, I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, I was the product of a, a bartender and a uh, exotic dancer as my mother. Um, my uh, upbringing wasn't the best. Uh, went through uh, two divorces as a, as a child or going through that. Um, have one sibling, a uh, half sister. And I actually uh, was getting in a lot of trouble, especially in high school. And, it, and it, I realized that it's not that I wasn't smart. It's just that I lacked discipline. And it took a, you know, a couple, you know, parking lot brawls and fights uh, for things to escalate pretty, uh, you know, pretty bad before I realized that I was probably going to end up dead or in jail if I didn't get out of Las Vegas. You just, as a kid growing up there with not a lot of parental supervision, you just grow up too fast. Um, so I, what I did is I ended up uh, knocking on the uh, Navy recruiter's door. I uh, wanted to join the military. I thought that was the right path. Um, and the recruiter that I spoke to at the Navy was very sweet, a very short little uh, Filipino lady. Um, and I was going to go in to go for the uh, military police side. And I remember leaving the Navy recruiter's office 
and I look left and I see the Marine Corps recruiting office and I see like this recruiter that could like barely fit into his uniform um just muscle sticking out everywhere and I was like then I kind of looked back at like the Navy office I was like hold on I went and talked to the to the Marine Corps recruiters and uh their attitude was completely different as it wasn't so much we could do this this and this for you it was why should we even let you in right why do you even deserve to be a part of our organization so me as like an egotistical like kid that thinks I'm tough you know I worked wonders on me because I ended up enlisting into the Marine Corps at 17 uh, dropping out of high school um my time in the in the Did Marine Corps was interesting. or where'd you go I was a San Diego Marine okay so, yeah. So what was it yeah. like, you know, for me, I grew up on the streets. I had a smart mouth and I had a bad attitude problem. Uh, so and I got tortured during basic. So yeah. what was your experience like? I mean, so just in receiving, I like begged like at 3 a.m. the receiving drill instructor who was on duty to like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I, I want out. Like I was not having a, like just in receiving, forgetting, I didn't even get to my training uh, platoon yet. And there's words that he told me that I, I live with me through like the rest of my life. And he took off his hat and he said, look, this is something that you're going to be happy that you did, but you'll never do again. And I completely kind of changed my mentality where I kind of like, I accepted it. And then I tucked my tail in between my legs thinking I can get out of this. Well, my God, what I do. And I ended up, you know, continuing on through boot camp, and there there was another pivotal point where we talked about it, having an attitude problem. Where I think it was like a week or two in, and I I was in formation, and for some reason I rolled my eyes naturally, not even thinking about it, and my drill instructor like grabbed me, threw me into a because we're outside, threw me into a completely empty squad bay that wasn't being used, um, and just told me straight up like, "You want to hit me? Hit me. No one's watching. No one's looking." You want to hit me? I know you want to hit me and just completely punked me. And the amount of restraint that it took, because he would have kicked my ass. I mean, just honestly, but I just know that that was a very pivotal moment. That that level of restraint that I had, because I could have like they they singled me out for a little bit. Like I was I was definitely on their list to, to try to get out or see if they can they can wash out. Uh, but I didn't. I just took it. And I think back, I'm like, wow, that could have been completely life changing. I could have if I would have swung on my drill instructor. Like not only would it would have kicked my ass, but I would have been kicked out and my life could have been completely different. Right. So uh, for me, I, it took about that point where from then on out, I was, I was pretty squared away in boot camp from there. Um, what job you know, did you, first, what job did you decide and why? Yeah. So I went in as a radio operator. Um, I was assigned with fifth battalion, 10th Marines at a camp Lejeune. Uh, they actually got deactivated after, uh, the the Iraq War, and um, actually, you know, after uh, a little bit shortly after uh, the whole Marja campaign in 2010, they deactivated 510, um, and then I did a year um, in the reserves with uh, Third Anglico afterwards. So, how many years did you do total? Uh, four years active, one year reserve, so five. Now, did you get deployed? Yes, I was in Ramadi for a year. Um, from to March of 2007 to March of 2008, I, I served in Ramadi. Now, I, we had the author of The Echo in Ramadi. He was on here uh, a couple months mm -hmm. ago. And it's amazing what you guys went through. Now, consider now you, you figure you're, what, 21, 22 years old. And 
you're getting out of the military. What was your thought process in getting out? Because I know, like, for me, I got hurt on duty and I didn't want to get out. Um, so I struggled with transition bad. And, you know, like mm-hmm. one of our friends says, you know, not Nick Valentine says, you know, once, the, once you get out of the military, the military doesn't give a shit about you. Uh, your phone sure. stops ringing. You uh, pretty much become a man or a female on an island. And you really don't have a mission. And you don't have a paycheck. And sometimes mm-hmm. people come home a little bit right, a little bit off center because of what happened to them over there. So talk to us yeah. about your transitioning. Um, I mean, it was pretty much a uh, textbook, textbook, terrible transition. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I remember because I got out or excuse me, I, I left. I came back from Ramadi in March of 08 and then I was out by August in 08 and as we know 2008 was like terrible uh, economically right and i remember like checking out of my unit and even like my uh battalion sergeant major because i was i was able to pick up e5 um in iraq and and within four years so even my battalion sergeant major was like look like you're a good marine i don't see good marines get out um you also look by you paying attention to you know what's going on economically the housing crisis and everything and i nobody could tell me anything and there was like that stigma say it was stigma but like we were all drinking way too much when we came home like even like you know even when we're still in and then we used to joke about it like ha ha i'm having problems adjusting look at me ha ha, ha. like and we we would never take it seriously but i i was drinking way too much I, when i got out i was drinking way too much um i was pissing away my gi bill money and in the casinos and, and bars um you know because it was the the reimbursed type and um you know, it was, it was very hard. Um, especially they always say the first year's like the hardest. Right. Um, but I mean, I came, I was, I, I joined so young. I mean, I turned 21 in Ramadi and then I, uh, shortly after I got out, I turned 22. And I mean, I had friends that were like, I had so much more life experience under my belt than any of the network of my people. Um, which, you know, for, well, I mean, I don't want to ramble too much on you, but, Long story short, I ended up working a couple jobs that I just didn't like. I tried, uh, I was very grateful to get a referral to be a food runner on the Las Vegas Strip. That just wasn't for me. I saw firsthand like how catty uh, other um, service people could be like over certain tables and um, you know, but when they start to feel like there was a potential for a good tip. Um, so there was just no like kind of team, like there was teamwork a little bit in terms of like the flow and the structure of like a restaurant, but there's like zero teamwork at all when it comes to like some other things. Um, I left that just wasn't for me. It wasn't fulfilling. Right. And so I started a, a job. I got recommended to um, uh, start a job selling cars for a Chevy dealership in Las Vegas. And the sales was completely new to me. That was the first sales job that I had. And I only lasted about three weeks because when I started getting the hang of it, um, I had a this little old lady on social security on a fixed income that walks on the lot when I'm working with a newspaper ad from one of our newspaper ads with a check in hand says, I want this car. I'm like, sweet. There's a, there's a lay down walk into the manager's office. Hey, I got a deal. I need to write this up. And they look at me and they go, did you run her credit? I'm like, I don't need to run her credit. She's she already came on the lot, like already wanting to buy. Like, no, you need to run her credit. I don't care who it is. I'm like, she doesn't. And I started like an altercation with management. Well, long story short, they 
they pressured me and made me test have her test drive a new vehicle so they can hit a new vehicle quota and they they had me sell her a car that was above like the payment than she was expecting right and the worst thing about it was is that the she had a grandson or a great grandson that was uh, either in Afghanistan or in Iraq at the time so you could imagine like the relationship and rapport that I had with this woman um, and I just I felt so dirty that like because especially because she was on a fixed income right like sales is sales like you, there is an element of it that's just it's just the way that it is but for me the fact that she was on a fixed income and I put her on a more expensive purchase with the payment um, I couldn't do it so I actually I, I hung it up um, and I and I quit after that um, during these jobs I was uh, in the reserves. Um, that that's what helped a little bit. I was still in the, I was doing the reserves. I, I couldn't find a reserve unit that I enjoyed, um, that I wanted to be in in Las Vegas. There's not a lot. So I was driving four hours to Long Beach, California, uh, to make it to third Anglico. Cause that was just a very elite reserve unit. I mean, some of those, some of those guys were just more proficient at their jobs and even their active duty counterparts, to be honest with you. I mean, a whole unit of LAPD guys, Homeland security guys, uh, detectives SWAT. I mean, it was just a really badass unit. And um, I had, but towards the end of the year that I was there, they were needing bodies to go to Afghanistan. Um, and in Anglico at the time, I really respect this about them, is that they didn't tell you that you were deploying if you, they needed bodies for the, to deploy with the active duty component components. They just gave a clipboard, and it was a volunteer base. It was volunteer to go deploy, um, and I had just had my daughter. I think she was like two or three months before. And that clipboard came by me when I was in formation and I didn't sign it. I, I just kept it, kept it moving. And on that long four hour drive back home, I realized that if I wasn't willing to deploy again, because I had just gotten back from Ramadi, that I, I shouldn't have, uh, I shouldn't be serving at least in the Marine Corps in this capacity, in this kind of unit. So I ended up leaving um, the reserves because when you're active first and then go into the reserves, there's no contract because you've already fulfilled your contract from the four years. So you can, there's no minimum requirement with the reserves. So that was when I was like mentally like, boom, wow, like completely done with the military, um, have a, I'm a new father. And, you know, I, um, it became very real with me in terms of like that. I knew that I needed to be like an entrepreneur that I needed to make my money. I, even though I was considered a good Marine, like I still have a problem with authority. still to this day, I have a problem with authority. Right. I think that's, that's a, one hallmark of being an entrepreneur. And, uh, so, so now, I, you know, I had, I had the honor of talking to general Petraeus on the show mm -hmm. and we were talking about, you know, how, and I brought up the issue, you know, if we train a soldier four to six months to go to war, why don't we train them to come back home? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why I say a lot of people when they get out, guys, when they get out, or girls, when they get out of the military, they're totally lost because I don't think the TAPS program is working. But, you know, like, say if you go to put your resume into somebody and all they're seeing is a bunch of nomenclatures and their eyes glaze over and they just put it on another pile. I don't think that the soldiers are being taught how to get into business or being mm -hmm. an entrepreneur. 
where I think most veterans should go, you know, that's why I think the guys from Bunker Labs do some amazing things. Um, so talk to us about what positive stuff you took from the military to becoming an entrepreneur. Okay. Um, I mean, first of all, before I go into that, I agree with you a thousand percent. My tap, TAPS class was, I mean, I was hung over the whole time. Didn't take it seriously whatsoever. Um, and on that topic, um, it's, I don't blame the units or the commands for not doing that or not really training uh, or preparing them to leave because they don't, they shouldn't be worried about the, the service members that are getting out. Cause a lot of us are getting out. We have kind of not, some of us have a bad attitude. Some of us are mentally checked out already and we're just not pleasant or we're not, you know, very, that we're not very productive to the mission at hand. The, the commanders and the unit should be focusing on the next mission at hand. Right. So there almost should be like a unit just the same way there was a three month boot camp, you know, at least for the Marine Corps, there almost should be like a separation unit for the last 60 days that you're in where they kind of condition you. Cause then there's an actual command that actually that's their mission is to prepare you. The, the active duty co operational components of the military should not be caring about the transition. They should be caring about the next mission. Um, it actually, that segues into something that I've, I'm actually just starting to work on. Um, I'm just starting to work on uh, something called veteranimpact.com, which is going to be my own version of steps and taps. Um, it's going to be completely free for service members. Um, you can pick a path. So if you go to the site, it's, it's still under construction, but if you, you can pick an entrepreneur path and you're going to see all kinds of resources and interviews done by people that are military entrepreneurs, you can pick the trade school path. One of my best friends I went to, uh, Ramadi with, um, he's a lineman in Michigan. I call him blue collar rich because he right out of the military uses Jayabo, went to lineman school, lives in a, a low, um, low cost living area and makes very good money and has accumulated some, some wealth over his time. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be components on working with civilians again, components on, uh, you know, military spouses. And cause I just knew that there wasn't enough. Right. So to get back to your original question, the the qualities that I took from the military that applied for me in my success as, as an entrepreneur, for me was what I learned as an NCO. Um, and that is just the principles of small unit leadership. There's, if I would have ran my startups like a Fortune 500 company with like strict HR guidelines and like strict etiquettes and things like that, um, and even strict professionalism, I wouldn't have made it. The biggest thing that I knew is from, you know, from the military when I'm a, a corporal or a sergeant in the Marine Corps and I've got a team of four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 guys and you're deployed, it could be, or if, even if you're in the field, the, the job and the personal life becomes blended. And there's some people in the professional world that shy away from that. Like, oh, don't bring your personal problems to work. Da, 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 da. There's a lot of people in corporate America are like that. And I completely disagree. It's, I was able to bring that close-knit familyness and actually care about the well-being of the people that I worked with or employed or were partnered with above and beyond um, any, uh, you know, any like corporate job. The other thing is, is that I hired a lot of people that were – uh, maybe not the best on paper. I took a lot of chances because I knew that my, I had a strong leadership skills that I could uh, work with more people or have more patience or mold more people that maybe needed a second chance. I've worked with, I've hired some felons 
that were still to this day actually extremely loyal because I actually gave them a chance. Now, I'm not saying go hire you know an army of felons for your companies. You need to vet them very well. You need to um, you know really kind of consider the implications of what the charges are. Like there's always every a story for everything, right? Um, or even if they're the, even if they're reformed, because there's some people that leave. Uh, maybe they made a mistake when they were 16, 17, 18. They do some time. And their entire life is double, triple jeopardy because they're paying for it still, yeah. even though they're completely reformed. So that's an aspect of, of something that is, that's helped a lot of being able to work with um, and manage um, a lot of different uh, characters and really blend kind of that personal and work relationship. And, and I call it the principles of uh, troop welfare. It's something that you learned as an NCO. I still apply that to this day is if someone's not good with their, marriages or relationships or their family and it bleeds over into work anyways so if you can if you care enough to help them a they're going to get help and b they're going to have a lot more respect and admiration for you and your organization you know and i love that you know and i'm one of those people that you were talking about you know i was looking at five years for grand larceny but somebody Mm -hmm. gave me a second chance um in my military career i had six article 15s so (laughs) i was the bad guy until 9-11 turned my life around. But it was some people yeah. just gave me another chance. And I think a lot of times those are the, your best people because they know that, all right, they, they had my back at the hardest times. Now they're in the good times. I'm going to have their back. You know what I mean? Oh, I agree. Yep. So now you get out of the military. Um what was your first foray into entrepreneurship? Um, and like, for me, I believe like, you know, Stephen Kuhn talks about um, if you don't have a business plan, you don't really have a business. You got a hobby. Um, and a lot of times we start a business and, you know, coffee, liquor, T-shirts, whatever. And then six months later, we're $10,000 in debt because we never had a plan to begin with. And we didn't, didn't know our margins or anything like that. So talk to us about your foray into entrepreneurship. Okay. Um, so those are wise words. Um, yes, you need to have a plan. You need to understand uh, cost of goods, margins, you know, like what your gross margin is on what your revenue is going to be. You need to understand overhead and especially need to understand economies of scale, which we can get into much later. However, I will say this is that even though I agree with Stephen a thousand percent on what he's saying, you still, this is the military. This is the Marine Corps thing that I, I learned and I applied is that no plan ever goes to plan. So don't psychologically invest so much into this business plan that you create. You just, it's actually better to mentally prepare yourself. So it's actually, by the time you end up where you're going to be, it's going to be nowhere near what you thought it was going to be on paper when you wrote your plan. Cause there's some people that write business plans and they just, they, they do all, they spend all this, time writing business plans and ironing out every little detail and they're just i call it the uh, they're, they're they, they they're mentally like feeling like they're working but they're really psychologically it's their their doubt is taking over and they're just delaying actually taking action right um so this so both are important i agree i think that you need to have that plan but you also need to just mentally be prepared that it's not going to go to plan that way you're not completely taken back and screwing up your head and your confidence when you have a couple setbacks. Um, so for me, my, my story straight up is my, uh, my wife was working at the time for 
this company called Breathe uh, in the Las Vegas Strip. They, she was, uh, it was a sales job. She came home one day and she was like, I just can't stand this. I can do, we could do so much of a better job. It's so mismanaged, blah, blah, blah. Like we, I mean, we all talk crap about our jobs, right? At some point, like on those kind of topics. So we decided to open our own auction bar in Town Square in 2008, Las Vegas. And I closed it two months later because I had no clue what I was doing. Completely failed right on my, you know, fell on my face. Um, and then she's like, oh, yeah, I'm pregnant. So <laughs> um, I then I had to do something, right? Like, so I, I what I did, I, I started taking the leftover inventory, the inventory that I had and started selling it on eBay to liquidate. Well, it was starting to sell a lot more than I thought. So I guess kept it going. So I started a very small online business selling products that I was selling anyways, or that I was previously selling from the closed kiosk. And I was making about like, I think three to four grand a month doing it. Um, not really knowing. And this is like the early days, early, early days of Amazon and eBay before it became like so saturated what it is today. Um, my supplier reached out to me and he had just had his sales manager completely screw him over when he was in Israel for six months. He thought he could trust him and he stole his entire customer database and started his own business when he was gone. Um, and he, uh, he's a very wise, older um, Israeli man who wanted um, to work with like having an American face and American voice in his, in his business. So he put me under his wing for a few months as a sales manager, uh, wholesale, that is not, not, uh, not retail. So I was, I had my online business. I was uh, working, um, learning the wholesale side of it. And I learned a lot from the man and it didn't last long before I realized that I needed to go off and try it again. So my, my mother at the time was moving to North Carolina. So I said, Hey, I used to live in Jacksonville. I don't want to raise my daughter in Las Vegas. So I said, you know what? Let's just try this again in North Carolina. So I opened my um, oxygen bar and aqua massage kiosk at uh, Crabtree Valley Mall from 2010 all the way up until uh, when we close it. I think 2019, 2018. Um, even when I was even when I moved to Florida, it was still still to this you know still to that point a very very good business. Um, from there, um, it's it was a constant trial and error. I tried. Uh, new businesses failed. You know, I call it the cost of tuition. You try something new, it doesn't work out. Some people spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars getting degrees, right? and that's called tuition. But why, as entrepreneurs, why, why do we take it so serious when we lose money on a deal or a venture or something? It's our, it's just our cost of tuition. Because at the end of the day, you either win or you learn. Right? You only lose if you quit. Yeah. So. Um, I was, I always did really good. I made some money and then I put it into some th stupid thing that I shouldn't have done and I lost it. And I was constantly kind of in that, um, doing that for a while. Um, I ended up expanding from mall kiosks to trade shows to where I would have uh, sales teams that would travel the country and work, um, home shows, state fairs as our big bread and butter. And I still operate that today. Um, and then 20, about 2018 came around. Um, actually, let me take a step back because this is an important component. I know I'm kind of going on, but um, 
during this time of kiosks and trade shows uh, for the product line that I was in, I knew that I wanted to be in the wholesale business because of my experience working as a wholesale manager. So I went to my, my supplier at the time and I realized like, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Like why go off and make my own brand, import my own thing. So I said, Hey, let's work a deal where I can make residual commission. I'll refer you wholesale clients and you just pay residual commission. Um, and so that made, um, that was another revenue stream for me that helped out a lot and, and, and built some really good relationships to where I think I built that up between 10 and 20 grand a month, depending on the month. Uh, Cause it's for retail is very seasonal, as you know, right. Yeah. Especially like holiday season. Yeah. So depending on the month at average, I'd say about between eight and 20, um, anywhere between there. So as an additional revenue stream, which, which helped a lot. Um, I, from that point, I, I started getting too big. Um, I, I was running between six and eight sales teams countrywide that were traveling, which is a logistics nightmare. Um, my experience from the military helped because sending a sales team to a trade show is kind of similar to sending a, a unit to the field. Like there's preparation involved. You need to get your inventory. You need to count it. There's the logistics of actually traveling. There's the, there's the mental side of salespeople being in a hotel together and missing their families back at home. There's actually some similarities to that, but I just, I got too big. Um, and I ended up having, I was supposed to merge with my supplier. I was getting very, very close with my supplier and we were supposed to merge. And at the very last minute, he's an older Chinese man. And there's a huge cultural differences and it didn't work out. So I had an opportunity at that time to, to be a partner in a solar company in Florida when solar panels were just first started. So I ended up um, keeping scale or excuse me, scaling down tremendously partnering out my shows with an operational partner and uh, same thing with my location, my kiosk in North Carolina, while I was focusing on the startup of uh, golden solar here in Florida. And after about, it's, it's, it's so funny to me because sometimes in business, when you do the same business for a while, you end up like mentally not appreciating it. Like you, you start to like, oh, these problems are this, this, these problems are only these problems because of this freaking industry or, and I, I, I just laugh because I, I learned so much from my experience in gold and solar to where like the, the problems in business are just problems in business. I used to think that they were just unique to the industry that I, that I was in. And I, I did that for about uh, two, three years until I had, uh, an opportunity with to actually buy the company that my wife worked for all the way starting from my entrepreneurial journey so that, the irony in that right where she comes home one day and is like we can do this so much better and that's what set us off on, on being entrepreneurs and 2018 i get a call um from my partner on the wholesale side of the business is uh says hey uh, the owners of Breathe, uh, one of them had a heart attack that he survived from, but it kind of spooked him into retirement. And uh, he's, I think he's thinking about selling the company. So there was two major auction bar companies in Las Vegas um, that for sure thought they were going to end up buying him out. Um, and I kind of came in at the end and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And, and as of May 1st, 2019, um, my company, Elevated Ventures, uh, absorbed uh, Breathe, which is a, an auction bar company in Las Vegas. Um, 
five locations on the Las Vegas Strip. We absorbed it on, on May 1st, 2019. And since then, we have grown it from five locations there to six in Vegas. And then we've added and expanded three locations here in Orlando, Florida, actually through COVID. I was just going to ask you, you know, a lot of people, you know, I, I've had now, this is like, my, I think my 405th interview of veterans and entrepreneurs. And, you know, a lot of people are just getting a steam ahead. Like I was in the health and fitness industry for over 30 years. You know, every year we would go to the Arnold, you know, we would go to, we would go to the Mr. Olympia shows and, you know, set up booths and all that. But then all of a sudden COVID hits and all of a sudden everything is shut down. So how did you survive and how did you pivot during those hard times? So the, it's, it was crazy. So I, my entire experience through COVID, the best way I can summarize it um, is that if you heard of the Warren Buffett quote, um, when everybody's fearful, be greedy. When everybody's greedy, be fearful. Yep. That's what, that's what I thought of through COVID. Like, so when I, you know, for the first two months, I was like, shit, what's going to happen? Scared like everybody in business. Um, and then I started realizing like, it's, we're going to come back from this. Like, it's not, it's, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's not going to be permanently changed forever. And for, well, first of all, it's an important point. I actually, I want, I want the audience to understand how my deal was structured when I bought Breathe because they can learn, learn a lot from this. I bought Breathe for, um, or sorry, when you buy a business, especially larger businesses, you typically will ask for um, owner financing, right? It's very hard to get a loan from a bank to buy an existing business. Um, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's hard. So just like buying a house, there's money down. So I put 25% down and then the owner, previous owners, I was making principal and interest payments to. So I, during this time, my principal payments were, and, and even interest payments was pretty much the amount of income that was coming in, right? Cause I, I'm, I was very patient. I knew that, you know, when this thing's paid off or refinanced, it was gonna be very lucrative. So you gotta think May, or excuse me, yeah, May 1st, 2019, buy, breathe. It's at the peak of the, you know, the payments are the, the highest, interest is the highest, excuse me. Um, I actually refinanced my primary residence to open another location in Las Vegas because it was an opportunity that just, I, I had to jump on it. It's, it's right next to planet Hollywood and um, a corridor, like the, the building itself. Uh, if you've ever been to cosmopolitan in Las Vegas, right across from it, there's this corner building on the corner of Harmon Las Vegas Boulevard where the bridges intersect. And it's, uh, so my store is literally on a, the easement for Las Vegas Boulevard, just indoor. And so we actually signed the deal November, 2019. I, do a cash out refinance on my, on my primary residence for, I think it was close to 170 grand, which pretty much almost all of it goes to the, the build out cost to get the store open. And then, so we open on March 1st and then we close March, I think 17th with COVID. <laughs> and I had just did a cash out refi on my house. And uh, so I'm in like debt through my eyeballs, right. Going through this, but then, when the COVID money started coming, like the EIDLs, the, the PPP, um, I started to pencil out some numbers and do some math because I, I saw storefront locations that were empty. Like COVID wiped out a lot of retailers. Yeah. So especially here in Orlando, that's, that's, you know, 
I was able to get my Archon, Icon Park location on a very, like, an unheard of deal, like a really low rent against percentage of sales. I actually ended up screwing myself because the sales were so good that I'm, I'm paying plenty in, in percent rent. But the landlords just wanted deals at the time. So I, I have three locations in Orlando. One's Icon Park where the big observation wheel is. The other two are the outlet centers that are huge meccas of, of tourism like the, the amount of south american tourism that comes through these these malls is, is massive and i could have never pre-covid i could have never got even in not even into a bad location let alone like one of my locations at international drive is the, right next to the starbucks that's right next or right at the entrance of the shopping center so what i knew is like you know i'll be patient applied for eidl I was able to get EIDL funds and I was able to use those funds to actually expand because I also kind of knew inflation was going to come at some point with all this money that the government was printing. And I, I just knew with, with labor creeping up, it was already starting to be the conversations with the, with the, the presidential election and minimum wage and all this kind of stuff that I knew that I wasn't going to make the same money where I was at, that the key for me was to have more stores that maybe make less money per store, but I have more of them than just hold on to the smaller amount of stores and just get destroyed by inflation and uh, and, and the labor market um, needing more. And we're already seeing it. I mean, we used to get away with um, minimum wage plus tips and and a small sales bonus to where, I mean, we got McDonald's paying $20 an hour in some areas. It's crazy. So we just knew, you know, we had to, I think it was, think it was Grant Cardone that said it. Like you basically, if you're not expanding, you're, you're, you're failing. If you're not growing, you're actually going backwards. And there's actually a lot of truth to that because when you're not growing, you are staying complacent and your competitors are growing and little by little day by day, you might not see it, but you're actually are losing, you know, losing ground. You know, and I, and I totally agree. Now I had like the iron, one of the iron chefs on, last week, Simon Majumdar, and he was talking about over the last two years, you know, we, we've lost over a hundred thousand restaurants in the United States, but also, you know, the owner of Hell's Kitchen, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he says, yeah, but 80% of them were shitty restaurants to begin with. So, you know, he's like, you know, so sometimes, you know, now you're able to absorb the people that were working for them you're able to hire the best talent now, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, not to get into like a huge political debate here, but I mean, there's, uh, if you ever heard the arguments of pro increasing minimum wage, they make the argument of, um, or they, they almost, they, I don't say ridicule, but they almost taunt the the business owners complaining of that they can't find good people. Um, and they say that, oh, well, it's not that you can't, that, you can't find workers that you just can't find people that want to work for you. And to be devil's advocate, I might not agree with their philosophies politically, but there's some truth to that. Is labor is a market, just like a product is a market, right? Just like a industry is a market. Labor absolutely is a market and you have to be competing with other businesses when it comes to labor and pay is not the end all be all when it comes to attracting labor. Your culture is probably the most important thing. You know, but again, also, like you said, I, I play the devil's advocate a lot. And I had somebody on, we were talking about the same thing. But if you have minimal skills, you should get paid middle wages. I mean, not minimum wage, but I mean, if you, if you, if you, you know, if you're a kid, 
kids getting out of high school and you're trying to go to college and, you know, whatever, you know, and you're working at McDonald's, that's fine. But if you're 38 years old and trying to make a career out of it, which you can make a lot, some good money out of it, but that shouldn't be the end all. And, the, you know, there's no reason you should get paid $18 an hour to make hamburgers, and which is wrong half of the time anyway. You know what I mean? I, so I, I do agree with you on the, philosoph- the, the, the philosophical side. But the fact of the matter is, is that that person who th- thinks that they need minimum wage or $18 an hour still is facing rent increases. Mm-hmm. Like their, their, their cost of living has, has gone up and we, and we can debate the philosophical, like uh, moral reasons of, of hard work and versus, you know, just being given a good wage. But the fact of the matter is that everything's more expensive these days. I mean, I, I personally like shop at Trader Joe's for my groceries. Um, I, I'm a big fan of that, of that uh, grocery chain and it's good food for, che- for pretty cheap compared to Publix where I'm at in Florida. And just in the last like two years, for three, yeah, two and a half, three years. I mean, our what I spend on groceries for my household has has gone up at least sixty percent. I mean, I know that rent's gone up. I mean, I was I've, I've been considering you know moving in and, and buying a new house or maybe renting this one out. And I mean, I can't even what I thought I could rent this for a couple of years ago was uh, is way less than what I can go for now. And that's just it's an inconvenient truth. It's an inconvenient reality of the conversation. Um, about labor and minimum wage and all this kind of stuff, because I absolutely agree with you when you, when you talk about like, Oh, this minimum wage is just, you know, minimum wage work, but inflation's getting crazy and it's going to get worse. You know, it's, it's actually, I'm surprised that it's taken this long to get kind of where we're at, to be honest with you. So businesses absolutely need to adjust. They need to use really good leadership skills and keep their staff close. Use, especially if you're a military veteran, using those those leadership skills that you learn from the military and keeping your staff as close as possible to where they actually stay committed and can ride the these waves with you um, is is very very important during these times. All right. So as we were talking before we before we got on, we're gonna ruffle a little feathers here for a minute. You know, you've been mm-hmm. in, you've been in the tribe a while. I've been in the tribe a while. Um, I've had my ups and downs in business. I've won. I've lost. What are some of the things that you're not just talking about the tribe, but in general, you know, because like I've had a lot of friends like Dean Bunchu, you know, he does the um, military veteran businesses. What are some of the things that you're seeing that, you know, for me, I find that a lot of veterans are some of the cheapest people you'll ever meet. They want something just because they're a veteran. Uh, or it's, mm-hmm. hey, bro, uh, help me out. I'm a veteran. You're like, slow your roll, Junior. So talk to us about some of the stuff you're seeing in the veteran community and the veteran entrepreneur space. Yeah, um, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I call it a, or I've seen the term being used and I started using it as, as being a vet flake. Um, I never heard that. I. <laughs> You never heard that? No. Yeah. Netflix. No. It's, 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 my, it's my favorite term when I see it. Um, it's this it's this ideology that somehow you deserve shit because you made a decision to join the military. Like nobody deserves you. Like you don't deserve anything for making a decision to go down that path. Like you, you yes, you as a society, we should like tip our hat. We should give respect and that's fine. But you shouldn't be feel that you're so privileged to need like special deals, um, like special circumstances that you should be like tiptoed around. I mean, 
it goes pretty deep. But so I'll 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 to go on this topic, I'll talk about a personal experience that might make sense. So 20 I think 2014, I finally decided to uh, get looked at for PTSD. Um, it's something that, you know, my friends were just like, you need to do it, you need to do it. And I, I remember being like 22 and going into a VA clinic and I was in a waiting room with like all of these crusty Vietnam Korea guys. And I just, I was so young. I just, I felt like I was so like, no, they need this more. Like they, they really like, they don't like, I'm, I'm good. You know, like they really, I'm, I'm, I, I shouldn't be here. They need this because they went through way more. And I was at a trade show um, before I finally went to my appointment way many years later. And I met a, uh, a former uh, Vietnam Marine recon at the a sh- a trade show in Chicago. And I was told him this story and keep it. I mean, this is like, this guy's like 60 something, like six foot four, just like incredible specimen of a man still in his age. And he looks at me and he's just like, you think I didn't think the same thing when I was sitting in a waiting room with a bunch of World War II guys. Like, and that was just like, fuck. (laughs) All right, you're right. (laughs) So um, it really put things in perspective for me. So I I went and I saw, and uh, I I saw uh, the the person that kind of uh, interviews you for PTSD. And just like anybody who's, who's gone through that, they know it's kind of, it's really eerie because the room's like dead silent and it's just, um, I remember getting through that, that interrogation process or interview process. And by the end of it, he's like, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yeah, uh, how do I get better? And these words are like, I live by this and I believe this so much. Cause I, like, I didn't need like constant, like PTSD therapy sessions after this, just from what he told me, he said, this is very unpopular. And it, again, it breaks my heart when I see it around the veteran community but you need to compartmentalize your experience. You are now, or excuse me, you are not a Marine anymore. You're not a combat Marine anymore. You're not in Iraq anymore. You are now a young father and, and you're aspiring businessman or you are a businessman. And then he asked me, he goes, let me, we got a question for you. Do you still have green shirts in your drawers if you're in your, in your, uh, in your house? It's like, uh, yeah, actually, I think I do. Um, do you have any stickers on your car? Does it say like, any like veteran stickers? Like, yeah, I have like an Iraq veteran sticker on my car. He goes, oh, okay. That's you in your subconscious still holding on to that experience. And I, it really dawned on me. I said, I was so taken back. Like, wow. So I, I, I left that office. I took out my driver's license. I peeled off the stickers. I went on social media. I unfollowed every military page. I went on a full military cleanse for about three months before I started being able to like add them back into it because I, I just, there was so much truth to that. And then from that moment on, I started actually becoming more successful in business when I was able to shed that skin of holding on to the military experience because it is not who we are anymore. And especially if your business is military related, I think that it's, you're not doing yourself any service because the military or veteran markets are so small and it's very much a red ocean. You've got like, how many veteran coffee coffee companies are there? How many veteran t-shirt companies are there? You need to, I think folks need to find a way to capture both 
like that's why I'm a big fan of like um I love uh, grunt style and like what they've done. Uh, a lot of their shoots, I, I see them everywhere, yeah. right? And it's they they expanded out to first responders that are that there's first responders that probably didn't serve right but if they would have stayed in their box of just their branch or just the military they would know they wouldn't be where they're at today so it's something that is, is very close and dear to my heart because i see it and i i don't think that i don't think that you can take your business to the level you want to that you're dreaming of unless and unless you can really fix and 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 work on yourself and and mentally as well so like if you have any kind of issues knowingly or unknowingly from the military you absolutely need to work on that because you're just going to spin your wheels in the mud as an entrepreneur until you get past those personal issues you know and i love that you know i and it just happened to be last month somebody asked me what i did and it used to be well you know i'm a, I'm a retired veteran but th this time it was different it was like i'm a i'm a author i'm a speaker i'm a podcast host and i'm also a veteran which came out way later yeah. So kind of like the yeah. mindset started shifting. Like when I talk, when you talk, you know, talk to John Lee Dumas, you really you have to get into his story to find out that he was a tank commander in Iraq that lost four of his guys. He, you know, yeah. he's just a businessman now or he's a podcast host, but he's not a veteran podcast host. And so I think that's something that you're talking about where, you know, I, I used to see now I still see a lot of guys wearing their BDU hats and you're like, bro, you've been, out, you've been out since 78, you know, yeah. you know, what else do you have? Like on my car, I don't, I don't. And I just thought about it as we, you were talking, I don't have any stickers on my car. I think my wife has them on the van, but I don't have any stickers on my car. I don't wear any of my hats or anything out. And I, I just, cause I figured, you know, I have to reinvent and reimagine myself. And I can't be in two places at once. You're absolutely right. And the thing is, we wrap up so much, or at least I used to, used to people wrap up so much of their identity to the military experience. And what they fail to understand is a lot of the civilian community, they respect and admire that, but they, it's also very intimidating to them. You're actually kind of alienating, depending on how deep you are or how, on how much in your face you are. Um, and because long story short, I, there's a lot of military people that are entrepreneurs that are trying to be entrepreneurs that uh, they might've screwed some things up or, or hurt some relationships uh, with civilian uh, business people that has kind of now uh, put the, a bad taste in their mouth. Um, I mean, that's just the, the reality of it. Um, so it's, if you're going to fly that veteran flag, it needs to be flown very seriously. All right. So I have a couple of business questions and then we're going to head off. Um, if you were going to start your business, start a business today in 2022, today's 323, 2022. If you were going to start a business today with little or no money, what would you do and how would you do it? Very little or no money. Um, define very little. I mean, maybe you have a, a couple thousand dollars starting costs. Okay. I'd go back into, and I'd open a mall kiosk. It's one of the most under, underrated businesses from a startup perspective. Um, that's where I started. You can open a mall kiosk for probably less than five grand, depending on your inventory cost. 
And it's almost like a sandbox that you can even play in and make mistakes in that aren't extremely expensive mistakes. I mean, I, depending on your ability and your sell, your personal sales ability and your ability to attract a team, manage a sales team, a mall kiosk can make you six figures off of one location, net income, not even just, I'm not talking revenue, I'm talking about net. Um, so if I had to do it all, like if I lost everything and I just was back in hustle mode, like grind it out mode, that's, that's what I would do. I'd open a mall kiosk for, uh, depending on what concept is hot at the time. What are three of the most important things that you've learned in business since becoming an entrepreneur? Mm. Uh, patience. Be number one. Number two, removing emotions from a lot of decisions. And when I mean emotions, I don't mean negative emotions because we live in a world where everyone just wants to preach about positivity. But actually, very, very positive emotions can be just as damaging as negative ones. And what I mean by that is, let's say I had a huge month in business, right? And I'm on a high, super like cloud nine. We just crushed it this month. What am I going to do with this money? Well, that high of feeling like you you won so big can cloud your judgment if you decide to do something else with it. And I've done that personally. Like I've been, I've, I crushed a month. And then like one time I opened a kiosk that did uh, uh, express manicures, like and actually hired nail techs to do like the paint people's toes and fingernails. I, I had no business being in that industry, but because I was on such a, a cloud nine and I wanted to grow and expand, I was clouded by my positive emotions from the good month that I should, that if I was wiser, I should have uh, not got into that. Um, so that'd be number two is removing emotions from decisions. Um, number three is removing ego um, pretty much in anything uh, when it evolves to working with other people. I think it's, yeah, there's a, it's important to be humble, right? But ego actually is important. Ego is kind of what kind of drives you to, to take risks, to be honest with you. So I'm not going to say that ego is like bad, kill your ego. But what I'm saying is that when it comes to partnerships, um, you need to have partnerships. And that involves removing an ego. Like I'm, I'm always kind of put myself last when it comes to like how we chop up the, the bucket because the mm -hmm. secret to my success, how it seems like I'm so big is that I've developed relationships and I have many operational partners and yeah. I would rather, I would rather own or have 20% of a million dollars or let's say $10 million than a hundred percent of a hundred thousand dollars. Does that make sense? Oh, makes so, a lot, but, you know, and like our, my friend Joe DeSena, obviously he started his new, new uh, show, the No Retreat uh, Boot Camp. He was talking mm -hmm. about last week, you know, they had a company come in, you know, pre-COVID, pre they were doing $9 million a year. Post-COVID, they're minus 400000 And now you got, he had to figure out how do we get a company profitable again? Because they were so busy at trying to expand that they kind of just didn't realize, you know, you didn't need spending all this money on, you know, all this different crap. So they had to go back and change their systems to, you know, become a little bit more lean and mean. So, you know, I know you love talking about growth. You love talking about expansion. So talk to us like sometimes when somebody opens up a business, 
it can only make so much amount of money, you know, mm-hmm. and, but so, and they get, they get stuck. Like some people say, well, what does Disney do? Well, mm-hmm. they do a lot of stuff. They don't just do, do cartoons. And I think a lot of like, for me, I didn't realize for my business, you know, that just because I have a podcast, I should also have multiple streams of income so I can grow. Yeah. So talk about expansion and growth a little bit. So, I think when someone who's never scaled a company before, I hate the word scale because it becomes so cliche, but if growing a company or growing a business before, if they've never done it before, uh, preparing yourself mentally and setting proper expectations with yourself is very, very important because a lot of people don't know really what goes into it. Um, it's always a game of getting the right systems in place and then the growth breaks the system and then replace the system, grow again, break the system. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that growth is actually expensive at first. Any major company, when they grow, always lose money. They lose money. Like look at Tesla for years. They were installing superchargers all across the country. They were, they had to build out all this infrastructure. Right. And then up until the past couple of years, they were, they started being profitable. Amazon. Um, they started out in a book. Amazon. Exactly. So understanding that growth is expensive and you need to make a personal decision is the potential for this growth worth the extra stress and it's worth the, the expense because you have to build the systems first and then grow. A lot of people grow without the systems in place and it fails because they didn't establish the right systems first. So when we, when we grew from six locations in Vegas to nine for Breathe, a big headache for me and my partner was uh, staffing and recruiting, especially with this new labor market. And it's something that we, we did a lot ourselves. And we realized that our sales managers, it was not a good uh, use of their time to have our sales managers doing like a ton of interviews. So we actually hired and had to pay, still to say, pay a decent salary to a full-time recruiter that handles all of the applicants screens them all does a phone interview and then we'll set them up for a second interview with the manager so we actually had actually another position we had to do was we had to hire a tech for the equipment that we use here in orlando we had to hire that and 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 pay that person while we were still growing because we didn't just do three locations overnight we had one and then we opened a second one and then months later we had a third so those salaries of that tech or the salary of that tech, it's scaled with three locations, right? Because like that one salary divided by three, that's the cost per location of that one person's salary, the tech. Um, but the the big thing is, is that you can't just like have, if I would open the stores first without that maintenance tech, I'd want to hang myself in the bathroom because I would, all of my day's time would be fixing little things from a technical standpoint of like rock and massage machines, the oxygen stuff, little things like that that happen. Um, so you absolutely need to think about the infrastructure that you need to support the, the growth that you're going to have. And you have to actually pay those expenses. Like I still, to this day, my recruiter doesn't spend a full 40 hours, but she needs that salary. I can, as a man, I can, we committed that salary to her when we hired her, but I know she's not doing the full 40 hours. Cause I, and I, so I still can open some more stores if I want before I kind of hit her max. Um, but that's something that you'd need to be in mindful. Like I'm not going to go back and try to adjust her salary down. Like she has bills to pay. She has, you know, that wasn't the deal. So it's, it's something that uh, about when you put the systems in place, whether it be people or software of knowing kind of when the breaking point is, let's say if it's a person like a recruiter, at what point 
of how many stores does one person or one recruiter handle before they kind of break is then before you need to hire a second one. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. So now what are you doing now and how do we find you? How can we support you? How can we learn from you and get mentorship? Yeah. uh, Great question. And, and thank you. So right now, um, I'm blessed with a, a partner that I have that's doing a really good job with the operational side of things. Um, and, it, and it's allowing me to focus on new ventures. So the what I'm doing right now is operationimpact.com. It is going to be my uh, virtual uh, coaching and community, um, as well as training. There's going to be training courses on a lot of different aspects to business. Um, there's veteranimpact.com, which is going to be a completely free resource of veterans. If you're listening to this and you think that you're an industry expert in whatever field that you're in, I'd love to interview you because I would like to have these recordings uploaded to Veteran Impact. So uh, men and women getting out of the military can actually hear advice if they're interested in a certain field. Um, and then I just recently, um, this is probably uh, a couple days early, but I, I just recently uh, worked with uh, Stephen Kuhn. And I'm going to be uh, taking over the Vetrepreneur Tribe. So I'm going to be expanding that. Um, well, leaving it as it is, but I'm, I'm going to be really providing a lot more value uh, to the Warrior Council and expanding on that. Um, you know, we're going to do a lot more um, one-on-one stuff, a lot more individual courses that, that are recorded, um, including a lot more in-real-life meetups. Um, and, and, and honestly, we're going to have some fun too, because what's the point of making money and aspiring to make money if, if we're not going to have some fun in the meantime, right? I, you know, and I, I've been in the tribe, I think, since Andrew owned it. I've been there mm-hmm. from, from day one. And I'm so blessed to be in the tribe because without the tribe, I wouldn't have the relationships I, I have today. And thanks to, you know, to Stephen and Lane, I'm like the only podcast that they allow to put out all my episodes because they know it's, I only have veterans. I only have venture yeah. there. So now if somebody wants to find you, get in touch with you. I mean, I know you're huge on LinkedIn. Um, I love everything you're doing. So how do we find you? The best way to, to honestly, to get in touch with me is going to be Instagram at Marshall Terran. Um, LinkedIn. I'm just, I get way too many solicitations to keep up with. Yeah. Facebook has becoming like, I, Facebook censors too much stuff and like it's, I don't see everybody's stuff. So I, I don't use it a lot. And I have a lot of like close friends and family um, that are on Facebook. So I kind of use it to steal memes and post them on Instagram, to be honest with you. <laughs> but um, uh, my Instagram is definitely much more of a business purpose for me uh, currently. So uh, reach out if you're, especially if you're a vendor entrepreneur, uh, if you give me a follow, I'll follow back. And if you have any questions, don't be shy. Just uh, go ahead and hit me up in the DMs. So they want to go to that one. You're, you're over there. That's where they want to yeah, go. At. Marshall turn. Okay. So the last question I have is going to be a two part question. Um, one's going to be business and one's going to be mental health. You know, like I said, I talked to, you know, um, iron chefs, um, um, Simon Mishumdar, and he was talking about, we lost thousands of restaurants. So we have a lot of people probably, especially in, in Vegas or Orlando or Jersey, that they lost their jobs, they're driving for Uber, DoorDash. So if you ask the average American person to do something in seven days, we're so we're so busy that they're never going to get to it. But if somebody's listening to our episode right now and we ask them to take an actionable step, 
in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if somebody is struggling with their business, what is something mm -hmm. they can do in the next 24 hours to get help? And then also, if somebody's struggling with their mental health, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to get help? Man, for a closing, those are some quite some questions for the closing questions. Uh, man, I hate to be that guy, but it, it, it really depends to the degree of the problem in business and to the degree of the problem in mental health, right? It's, I'd hate to give a kind of like a blanket response. Um, like for mental health, I mean, it depends if the person's like, if they're suicidal or if they're depressed or if, I mean, I think on the mental health side, uh, immediately, if you're not doing it as exercise or getting some kind of hobby, um, because I think that for me, I learned this the, the hard way is that I was committing so much time in business and with other, you know, adult responsibilities that when my mental health was starting to suffer, um, partly is because I was, I was investing so much time and my identity into, like I say, like being an entrepreneur. So if I had a bad month or some setbacks in business, it really screwed with me mentally. But what I found is getting a hobby is super important. So like I, I'm a big advocate for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, I'm like a senior blue belt. Um, hopefully can get see the purple belt this year. Um, and I know that um, for me, if I had a bad month in business or let's say a bad month in general, say from friends, family, anything, but if I made a progression or if I tapped somebody that used to beat me, if I got a stripe on my belt, um, it mentally it helped because it wasn't just all, it wasn't a month of just full or a week full of all bad. There were some positives that happened. So I, I can't stress the importance of, of getting a hobby like immediately if you don't have one. You can't put your whole life into your business, period. Like it's because if you have a bad month and your whole life's in that business, it's going to screw you. I mean, you're human, right? You, it's it's going to really put you on your butt and it's going to make you not confident. And when you lose confidence, that's when you really start suffering in business because I can't – confidence is everything. Um from an actual step to, to help in business, if you um, if you're having problems in business, um, books, books, and uh, finding a podcast episode. Um, I personally, I know uh, before you hit record, we were chatting about Robert Kiyosaki. That man was like my idol when yeah. I was just starting out. I went out uh, when I was when I closed my kiosk, um, my first one. Um, I went out and I, I, on a credit card, I bought every single rich dad and rich dad advisor book. Like still to this day, I have them. Um, and I just, just learned as much as possible because even if you only can apply five or 10% of what you learned in those things, it's still valuable. Right. And it's, there's resources everywhere, but people just are not taking the initiative to go out and find it. That's what's so, so frustrating. I mean, I don't want to get into the college or no college debate, but I mean, if you don't decide not to go to college, there's, there's so much information out there between the internet and even books, just go to Barnes and Noble and you can find plenty of business topics that you might be struggling with. Yeah, and I love that. You know, like I went 80% blind two years ago. I lost my vision. So I had to do something to keep my mind occupied. So my wife signed me up for audible and, you know, I'm listening to like two to three books a week. And now I'm studying um, books by Russell Brunson because I, I 
I like I like the way he you know what he teaches, and I'm I'm actually mm-hmm. gonna get him on the show. I think probably in the next sixty days. Um, so I think that's not that's a great thing that you know if you if people don't like to read, get join Audible for fifteen bucks a month when you're doing your cardio mm-hmm. at the gym. You know, there's no reason you can't get educated even for just fifteen bucks a month. You know, absolutely. So, Marshall, I just want to say thank you, brother. I'm so grateful, guys. If you watch this, make sure you go to his IG, check out his, check him out. Make sure you follow him, subscribe. He's got some amazing things going. I can't wait to see what he does with the tribe. We're sixteen thousand strong. I don't see why we can't be sixty thousand strong one day. Um, thank you guys for always being there for me. Um, if you guys want this coffee, make sure that you write coffee in the comments and you'll enter to win that coffee. Um, and uh, Maxwell Soaps, guys, thank you um, for everything you do trying to help veterans, but also try to clean up the streets of scent of um, L.A. And I'm Marshall, I'm just so grateful and thank you so much for spending the time with us today. And I'm so grateful for your friendship. And I hope this just starts to build a relationship from that from here on out. Absolutely. I feel the same way, brother. Thank you for having me on. It's been an honor. All right, brother. Have an amazing weekend. Hopefully when we get out to Orlando, we get to hang out sometime. Guys, remember, vertical momentum. The only way to go is but <laughs> up. Love Absolutely. you guys, and I'll catch you tomorrow. Hey, guys. If you're enjoying our show If you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new t-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee. And it will it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out. Leave us a note. Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives.